0: Good morning. It's time for you to reach inside of the bulletin, pull out that insert, and we are going to study God's Word. As you know, we are in a series on prayer on the Lord's Prayer. We've been thinking about prayer, the Our Father, that uh, has been, is found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. It's also found in Luke chapter 11 when the disciples of Jesus ask Him a very simple question. And the question is this, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. They had made a connection, and this is what we've been saying all along. They had seen his life. They had made a connection between his relationship with God and his ability to live life. They had made that connection between the way that Jesus lived and the way that he prayed. And the theme of this series, as we think about prayer... And we think about living like Jesus in the world as it is today is this. Living like Jesus requires praying like Jesus. If you want to live like Jesus, you need to learn to pray like Jesus. And that's what the disciples saw. They saw all the miracles that he had performed. They saw all the or they heard all of the teaching that he presented. They experienced all the grace that he extended, but they also saw one other thing. They saw the times in which he was attacked. They saw the times in which the temptations would come flooding into his life. They saw his strength. They saw his buoyancy when the waters would get a little troubled. They saw his poise when under attack. And they asked him, teach us how to pray like that. Why? Because we want to live like you do. And that's what Jesus is doing in this prayer. Now, let's step out of that for just a second. On February 2nd, 2014, a fella by the name of David Barcats walked into the apartment room of Philip Seymour Hoffman. You know this guy from the movies. And David Barcats walked into that room and found this actor dead from an overdose of heroin. The syringe was still hanging out of his arm, and there were five packets of of heroin lying on the floor. And, I mean, it's just absolutely sad. But the thing that, at least to me, makes it even sadder is that Philip Seymour Hoffman had realized at the age of 22, as he was getting out of college, that he had an addictive personality. And not only that he had an addictive personality, but he had a lot of addictions, And at the age of 22, he saw that he needed to put himself in a rehab center. And he goes in, at the age of 22, he goes in and he gets clean and he gets sober and he stays clean and he stays sober for more than two decades. For more than two decades. For more than two decades. Five months after... He is found dead in his apartment in Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, one of the writers, David Brown, writes on the death of Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think you know he's in his mid forties now, and I want to share with you a piece of this article. He writes, "Whatever precipitated Hoffman's fatal bender, friends assert that it was not a suicidal streak, but a relapse turned deadly." And then he says the addiction was always trying to find a way back in. And it started using the idea that the kid was an addict, and now he's an adult with incredible willpower. He was a kid with an addict, but now he's an adult with incredible willpower. He was a guy in his mid-40s who said to himself, I never had a drink or used drugs in my adult life. So maybe the adult thought he could handle it. End of quote. Church, if you get nothing from this message, please retain this. That life is full of attacks that we are not adult enough to handle alone. Do you realize that? Life is full of attacks that we are not adult enough to handle alone. One of the things that Christ Jesus knows about us is because of who we are and our weakness and our frailties in the flesh, Jesus knows and communicates to us in his teaching and teaches us how to deal with this. He knows that we need in our life a divine ally. He knows that we will never be adult enough for many of the assaults that will confront us in this life. And this, friends, quite frankly, is why he teaches us to go to our Father. To go to our Father in prayer and to ask, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us. From evil, Will you say that with me? Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's say it again. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is so important that he is going to repeat it in the Garden of Gethsemane 20 chapters later. He is about to die. The temptations are about to overwhelm him. He goes into the garden. He takes his disciples with him there, takes three of those. They go a little bit further, and then he goes even further out. He comes back, and twice he finds him sleeping at the peak of his temptation, in his being overwhelmed to the point that he he has sweat and blood mixed together, and he tells them, watch and pray, that you do not fall into temptation. Why? It's not because you want to. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is what, church? Weak. Watch and pray. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Many of the attacks we face are going to be in the form of a temptation. And most of the time, it's going to be when you're not looking. Most of the attacks, many of the the attacks we face are going to be in the form of a temptation. Let me give you a definition, an Abshirian definition of temptation. It is, a temptation is an enticement. It's something that looks pretty good. It is an enticement to lure us away from God. This is why temptations are powerful. They make it hard for us to say yes to God. We might want to, but the flesh is weak, and we end up saying no to God. Oscar Wilde, if you've read any of his stuff, you know that he was, you know, he, was not, he was not the greatest example of morality that ever lived on planet Earth. But he had a very humorous and sometimes a very pointed way in helping us to see human nature. Oscar Wilde said this, I can resist everything except temptation." I can resist everything except t- temptation. Who doesn't know what he means? And this is why Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into, t- into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. But wait a minute. Wait wait a second. The first half of that verse appears to say That maybe God is going to drag us into a temptation, and once we're there, He's going to scream at us, resist. I mean, that's sort of what it sounds like when you just kind of look at it at face value, right? But actually, that's more of our strategy of dealing with it. I mean, we find ourselves in a temptation, and then what is it that we want to do? We want to resist through grit, not grace. This is actually a literary device. It is known as a litotus. It's, uh, yet You don't even have to know that word. I'm just, but that's what it is. It's a literary device. It's a form of understatement. The definition goes something like this. The positive is expressed by the negative of its contrary. Huh? The positive is expressed by the negative of its contrary. You know what? This is better um, expressed in, in terms of an example, or it's more understandable as an example. Let me give you a couple of examples of a latotus that we use every day, and we don't even know that we're using it. When a guy says to another guy, she's not hard to look at, he actually means what? She's beautiful. If, if, uh, if the doctor tells you about you know, the hip replacement or the knee replacement, you won't be sorry, he actually means what? The opposite. You'll be glad. Not a few means what? Many, right? A lot. There's actually an example of how Jesus uses this in another place in John's Gospel. John chapter 6, verse 37, where he says, All those the Father gives me will come to me. Makes sense. But then he says, And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Why would you even think that, Jesus? Except This is just a way of expressing that he accepts everyone who comes to him. In other words, when Jesus does this in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, talking about temptation, He's actually saying this, Lead us not into temptation is another way of saying, Deliver us from evil. What Jesus is teaching us in this prayer is that you do not fight these battles of temptation by yourself. You go to your Father. You're not adult enough. You are a child of God. He is your Father. Lead us not into temptation is another way of saying, deliver us from evil. Now, with that in our mind, I want us to see three things very quickly. These three things are the inevitable temptations that are before us, the malevolent forces against us, and the loving Father for us. Let's start with that first one the inevitable temptations before us. The oldest story in the Bible is creation. That there is a God, and that God is active. The God creates everything that we know, right? Second oldest story in the Bible is this. Satan goes to Adam and Eve in the garden, says to Eve specifically in the Garden of Eden, what will it be? God... Or this forbidden but really beautiful, lovely fruit. And from that point on in the history of the Bible, from Genesis all the way to the maps, from that point on, to be human is to be tempted. It is inevitable. And guess what? Jesus himself, the Son of God, was tempted like us. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, we read, We do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. He understands. Why? We have one who has been, say it with me, tempted in every way. There is not a temptation that you know that Jesus has not faced himself. There is not a temptation that that has been sitting there right in front of you, that at some point in Jesus' life was not sitting right there in front of him. He has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So, as Peter writes, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you. Don't be surprised. When these tests, these temptations come into your life. In fact, the verb and, the, and the, uh, the noun form of the same verb shows up in both of these. Come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Temptations are not strange. They're inevitable. But what we also know is this. That as a temptation is inevitable, it is not sinful. To be tempted in the fallen world is not a sin. Now, one of the commentators writes that the word temptation, the word perosmos, that we just saw in those two verses right there, can either go in one of two directions. The first is a test. A test. You know what a test is. You take a test, and it reveals what you do know or what you don't know. A test reveals what you have mastered in your your life. A test lets you know how far you have come and perhaps how far you still to go. So, when you come across this word, it means it can either become a test and reveal to you where you need to go and what you have and what you've mastered and what you know already, or it can go the opposite direction. It becomes a trap. And you know what a trap is. A trap is something that alters your life. It can decimate your life. It can bankrupt your life. Traps can bring crushing, crushing harm. You know what they teach mice, right? The older mice teach the younger mice. The free cheese is always in the mousetrap. This free cheese is always available in a mousetrap. When the temptations come, a temptation can be a trap to ruin you or a test that refines you. To be tempted is to face the direction your life could go with or without God. That's a temptation. Now, most of us want to be delivered from temptation, but we would kind of like for it to stay in touch. But that's why Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So those are the inevitable temptations before us. Now, the malevolent forces that are against us. What we face calls for a power that is greater than us. What we face on a day-to-day basis as disciples of Jesus of Nazareth and trying to, to be guided on that path of righteousness for His name's sake is greater than us. And it is not ultimately bad circumstances. It is not ultimately suffering it is not ultimately other human beings, even though we like to, you know, because we don't see with a spiritual eye most of the time, but with a natural eye, we identify the real enemy is the one before us in flesh and blood. The Bible says no. It is a malevolent being that we call the devil. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul makes it very clear our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual what? Forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse 8, you know when you use the word malevolent, I mean, it's not a word that we use a lot. I mean, we get the idea, you know, it's the dark side. But you use the word malevolent too much, and somebody's going to think that you're talking about kind of the dark side of a superhero, right? The Bible will not allow us to to go there with the devil. Peter, who had seen firsthand what the devil can do to people, how a person of faith, a human being, somebody made in the image of God, can fall from grace and and can fall away from God, says, you know, you need to be very, very careful because we're sheep. And at the end of 1 Peter, he says, because you are sheep, You need to be alert, and you need to be sober-minded. You need to understand what the world is like, the world that you live in. Be able to see it with spiritual eyes and not just natural eyes. C.S. Lewis, in the Screwtape Letters, says this. The greatest trick that the devil ever performed was to convince us that he does not exist. We don't see him. We have to see with spiritual eyes. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, he's not your friend. He's not your mentor. He is your enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to what? To eat. He wants to eat you. In in, in John chapter 8 and verse 4, Jesus himself says that he, the devil, is a what? A murderer. From the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You'll remember, and this is one of the reasons why Peter has such strong language to, to say to the church about the nature and the character of the malevolent force that is against us. Do you remember at the Last Supper, what you know, Jesus says, you know, one of you is going to betray me. And they're looking at each other and they're going, is is it me? I mean, because they all knew in their own hearts that that was possible. Except one. Peter. All these cats may, 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 may fall away. They may deny you. They may betray you, but not I. And Jesus says to him, Peter. Peter. What you don't know. Is that Satan has said your name has said your name into the ear of God and he is asking to sift you like wheat. You know, in that moment, Peter was not very sober-minded. And he certainly was not alert. He had no clue that that was going on. Do not think that you are your own worst enemy. Do not, I don't, I I used to think, you know, the only person that Mark has to blame is himself. You know, I'm my own worst enemy. And I can be a pretty bad enemy to Mark because I can convince myself of anything. But your own worst enemy is not you it is the evil one and there you know there's one worse than you as bad as you can be sometimes there is one worse than you and he will attack you in one of four areas those four areas are your identity remember what he did Matthew chapter 3 the voice of god at the baptism of jesus is you are my son in whom i whom i love in whom i'm well pleased from that point on the spirit drives him into the wilderness Matthew chapter 4 and what happens After 40 days of being in the desert, in the wilderness, in a fast, Satan shows up at that opportune moment. And what does he say to Jesus? If you are the Son of God. Twice out of the three. If you are... Satan... Will get you to doubt that God is your father. I'm going to talk, uh, I'll, I'll go through this quickly because we're going to talk more about this in the fall. But then, number two, unhealed emotional wounds. A lot of times we focus on the sin, Satan is going to focus on your emotional needs. Um, Leanne Payne says this Satan will make a nest in your wounds. We focus on the sin, and we're just going to stop doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this. And Satan will allow us to do that because he knows that the source of that sin is the temptation, the broken place, the pain in our life. Satan is the one that can take a paper cut, friends, and turn it into something that is so deep. Number three, unmet desires. This should have happened. It was supposed to happen. I thought it was going to happen, unmet desires. And then the fourth one, that God is not love. How many, of you, how many times in your life have you said, because you did something that you, just, you find so unforgivable, that God is not love, that God, is, God just can't, God cannot forgive me. That's Satan talking, not God. God is saying, I'm your father. You're my son. You're my daughter. God is love. The source of our destruction, friends, is fueled by an unseen malevolent force that is more than we can handle. And what Jesus teaches about handling temptations is so counterintuitive in the way that we do anything in the United States and in Western culture. We are literally, when we pray this prayer, praying a vote of no confidence in our own abilities to overcome the temptations in life. Our culture talks in interviews about our strengths. Jesus is teaching us to pray our weaknesses. And then the final thing is this. You you know, we're we're children, but we have a Father. A loving Father who is always, always, always for us. Our Father delivers us from evil. And Jesus teaches us to be honest in the grace-driven presence of the Father We better than any, those of us who really have tasted grace and the love of God and know that we have been forgiven, we should be the most, we should be able to be the most honest people in the world because we know that God knows everything about us. He knows because He sees us, He knows because He sees us when we're not even aware of it, and He knows it because we can confess it in His presence because we know that He loves us and He forgives us, and we are saved by grace. We are literally praying, Father, don't let these temptations become traps that destroy my life. You know, there there are two ways to, to process a temptation. One is, as an adult, I can handle this. The kid in me, maybe not. But the adult in me can. Or it's to be a child before the father who says, I can't handle this, and I need my father. That should be just our first reaction whenever temptation comes. A hundred years ago, when I was probably six or seven years old, our family had taken a vacation. We were living in North Texas. We had taken a vacation in southeast Oklahoma at Beavers Bend, beautiful place. And it's pitch black out there. I mean, this is in, you know, a long time ago when there were not a whole lot of you know electrical outlets in Beavers Bend, Oklahoma. And it was super dark at night. And we're walking, my two brothers and my dad and I, we're walking down the path or down the road. And um, I mean, it's pitch black. We can't really see anything. And my dad, who is a jokester, is talking about, yeah, you know, they have bears in this part of the world. And my brothers and I are going like, what, bears? He says, yeah, you got to be careful. They're going to eat you right up. And about that time, out comes this gigantic sheepdog, which looked like a bear in the dark. My brothers and I climbed right up on top of my dad's head, and the only person to beat us there was my mom. (laughs) When the temptations come, you hear the lion roar. You climb on top of God, and you pray every day. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from, say it with me, evil. Let's pray. Father, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. And we, in our our prideful moments, do not believe this, and, and we do not act accordingly. We do not acknowledge the deep threat, the rising water, the ruthless winds, And we confess that this is why we experience endless falling. Gratefully, we come to our senses. We come to our senses and we see you as our Father. You have not lied to us about the danger. You have come to our rescue. And you're always, always there. Just as you promised and so we pray father in the name of jesus do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil and we pray this in the name of our crucified and buried and resurrected savior jesus of nazareth amen